so let's take advantage of the privilege of prayer again. Our Heavenly Father, may your word be a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. May your spirit be at work in us, so that in this hour, your name may be exalted in our prayers, our praises, our professions, and in the preaching of your word and our response to it. May your spirit, who inspired your word, fill our hearts with his light, so that we might respond here and wherever we go, Lord, in a Christian way. We ask that you would hear us in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to continue our series on the Belgian Confession, and we are looking at Article 27 that gets us into the uh, teachings about the church that Christian church professes. And uh, as we do that, we're going to be shedding light on that profession from the Word of God from Ephesians 2. We're going to start with verse 11, actually, and then read to verse 22. Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, and uh, consider the Belgian Confession, then Article 27, and uh, you'll find that confession and that particular confession uh, on page 82 and 83, so on uh, Blue Hymnal. So first of all, we're going to turn to the Word of God, to Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom... The whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That oneness, holiness, and universality is, is the confession that we make, that we find out of places like Ephesians. We make that confession and tonight we look at Article 27 that speaks about that when it talks about everyone is bound to join himself to, oh, excuse me, uh, down at verse 80, uh, page 82, first of all, I'm sorry, the Catholic Christian Church there, Article 27. We believe and profess one Catholic or universal church, which is a holy congregation of true Christian believers 
all expecting their salvation in Jesus Christ, being washed by his blood, sanctified and sealed by the Holy Spirit. This church has been from the beginning of the world and will be to the end thereof, which is evident from this, that Christ is an eternal king, which, out with, which, which without subjects he cannot be. And this holy church is preserved or supported by God against the rage of the whole world, though it sometimes for a while appears very small, and in the eyes of men to be reduced to nothing. As during the perilous reign of Ahab, the Lord reserved unto him 7,000 men who had not bowed their knees to Baal. Furthermore, this holy church is not confined, bound, or limited to a certain place or to certain persons, but is spread and dispersed over the whole world, and yet is joined and united with heart and will by the power of faith in one and the same spirit. May God's word indeed be a blessing to us again in this evening hour. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's remarkable how many things that we believe are true or that exist that we've never actually even seen. You know, like when we would say, if somebody would ask, well, did Abraham Lincoln live? You'd say, well, sure he did. Did he exist? Yes, he did. But we didn't live in the times that Abraham Lincoln lived, and so we've never actually seen him in the flesh. Some people may have visited New York City, and, and if you were to ask them, have you seen the Empire State Building? They may have, uh, but many of us have never been to New York City, and many of us could say, well, I've never seen the Empire State Building. I don't know where the Twin Towers used to be. Uh, but I know that they existed, or that they exist, even though I never was there, perhaps. Having never seen it, we still believe that these structures exist or existed. And on a similar plane, we see in the Christian faith that our faith is necessitated and is based not on necessarily what we've seen, but what we've heard. It's based on what we believe with our ears and not our eyes. Uh, we've never seen the resurrected Lord. Not a single one of us ever has. But we believe that there is a resurrected Lord. And that's because of the testimony of the eyewitness apostles of Jesus Christ and the testimony of God's word that Christ was raised from the dead according to the scriptures, as the Apostle Paul would say, in 1 Corinthians 15. And we take that same approach in the Christian faith when we believe by what we hear, not by what we see in our confession of the church of Jesus Christ. Her oneness, her holiness, her universality aren't based on the ability of people to make her so, to make her one, to make her holy, to make her universal, but on the ability of the triune God. That's what makes the church of Jesus Christ unique. That's what the church professes. That's what we hear in our passage today. And unlike any other organization of people, 
this is one gathered, sanctified, and expanded entity that includes all kinds of people, not because of the will of men, but because of the will of God, and that makes her unique. That makes her precious. That makes her one who is to be valued. Based on God's will and word, we profess the church as we do, as one, as holy, as universal, apostolic as well, but that's for another time. For us today, we look at that oneness. We focus this evening on the character or attributes of the church, namely in these three ways, one, holy, and universal. For some, it would seem odd, even false, and maybe even annoying to some people to speak confessionally of the church as one church instead of a plurality of churches. Because after all, we speak in our own federation of churches of the United Reformed Churches in North America. Or we might say, well, there are various churches in the area. We have official fellowship with various churches, both home and abroad. And yet the church has historically and continues contemporarily to profess the church of Jesus Christ in terms of its oneness, in terms of its unity that way. And the reason for that always goes back to the word of God, which makes it so. It goes back to the word of God by which we make our professions anyway. Our profession is never based first on what we experience or what we see, but what we hear from the word of God. Because of that word, we, as we heard just now about the oneness of the church, we make the profession of the church that she is one. And we can speak of the oneness of the church, of course, in different ways. Some of this may, may slip into somewhat of the universality character, but, but, but given what we have heard in Articles 25 and 26 about the unique intercession of Christ and the, the continuity of the two testaments in Scripture, it follows that we can speak about the unity of the church in terms of time. That's one of the ways in which we can speak about the unity of church, uh, of the church. It's in terms of time. It's a blessed way. Our profession states that the church has been from the beginning of the world and will be to the end thereof. The confession states that the reason for that is that Christ is an eternal king who always has subjects. No doubt that's true, but, but to add to this, we can mention that the church and the faith that it professes has always existed in time, because from the beginning of time, there's always been a gospel of Jesus Christ to believe. Not that the incarnate Son came in Old Testament times, He came in the fullness of times, but the essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ has always existed. 
We don't look at the church then as we would have to do with with other religions as a Johnny-come-lately religion. You know, the, the Church of the Latter-day Saints is a, a cult that has to look at itself as a Johnny-come-lately religion. Their name even makes it out that way, of the Latter-day. And that's why there's this obsession, isn't there, with genealogy in the Mormon way. So that dead people who have never heard about the LDS faith before can be baptized into it, dead though they be. And while the covenant church may have looked differently than it does today in the Old Testament, or in in the Old Testament times than it did today, it was still part, as is that New Testament version of it, it's, it was still part of the assembly of the elect, the congregation of the saved. It was still the covenant people of God, and it is still that way today. It was still part of the elect of God from before the foundation of the world. There is no Israel and church as separate peoples of God. They're one. The true Israel, the holy nation, the people belonging to God are those whose faith has always been in the gospel of the gracious covenant God in Jesus Christ, which is why, in part, that we speak of the one congregation or one church, singular, of Jesus Christ. It's legitimate for us to say today, for instance, that there is the church, and there is God's people, God's people that way. But it is not legitimate for us to say that there is the church now, and that's God's people, and it's and then there's Israel, and they're God's people. And it's not profitable for us at all to listen to people on the radio or wherever we might hear them who talk like that. The church is comprised of God's covenant people, Old Testament and New Testament. The church is of all ages. It may have looked a little differently in the Old Testament times than it does in the New Testament times, but the church is one throughout the ages. That's why we profess a Holy Catholic Church, not many churches that way. And to speak differently is not to profess the oneness of God's church that spans all times. She has been, she is in history and will be the church of Jesus Christ thanks to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks to the gracious word and work of the triune God in Jesus Christ. We thank God that the good news of salvation has always existed. God has always shown a compassion for the human race that way. And because of that, we can thank God that the church has always existed in which we can be built, in which we can be nurtured, in which we can be encouraged and value the church that way as the blessing that it's meant to be for us. The church is also 
very closely related to this. The church is also one in terms of ethnicity. We hear about that in our passage as well. Right? We, we hear about how uh, there is this oneness that's, that's taken place because of Jesus Christ. Uh, that's, that's very much emphasized in this passage. Uh, we live in times that people especially like to speak, of course, of multi-ethnicity and of multiculturalism, where one's ethnicity with what one looks like on the outside is meant to be that which matters the most. That's what's supposed to be recognized. That's what's supposed to be respected. And you can go through the calendar now. It used to be you went through the calendar and there's always these church celebrations. Now you go through the calendar and there's always another ethnicity to have to promote. But appearance is not everything. But in our culture it is. Appearance is most important to people. As much as they want to talk about how we get everybody together, there is this sectarianism that takes place because appearance is emphasized. And of course, it's emphasized in a lot of ways. It's, it's certainly emphasized in terms of what you look like naturally. Uh, but also, appearance is most important to people to declare who they are, even in terms of gender, right? If I wear things a certain way, that makes me that person. That makes me a male. That makes me a female. Because appearance is everything to people. And yet what is most to be most important for us is not so much what we look like on the outside, but what God has done for us by his grace on the inside. What you look like on the outside, what your nationality is, what your racial profile is, and how you dress matters most to most. But it's not the Christian profession. It's not the profession that Christians make when they profess the oneness of the church. It's a humble profession that states that it is not what I have done to myself on the outside that matters. Which, again, you go into a shopping mall, you go to a beach, you go to somewhere in the public, and you can see what matters most to people. They want you to see what they look like on the outside. Appearance is everything to so many. But it's a humble profession that says, I don't care what I look like on the outside. That's not what matters so much as what it is that God has done for me through his son and his spirit on the inside. Regardless of my natural appearance or my made-up appearance, so that I can show to the world, look who, look who I am now, pay attention to me. Now, the Christian church is saying, pay attention to the triune God, and let me tell you what God has done for me, who's made me special, and that gets into the holiness element, but we'll, we'll get there, but, but the church that's the, that's the remarkable thing, right? Is that the church is multi-ethnic ethnic, and it's inclusive not because the church says, well, you can believe whatever you want, you can do whatever you want, and that's how we show how we're so inclusive. 
No, the church is multi-ethnic and the church is inclusive because true believers are gathered by God's grace from every tribe, nation, and tongue. That's how it's inclusive. That's how it's multi-ethnic. Christ preaches peace between God and men through him. And he does so from the, with those who are near, says our passage, and far away. Jew and Gentile, so that true unity can occur between the peoples of the earth. And that's where true inclusion occurs. That's a word that's had a bad ring to it of, of late. We were talking about it at home a little while ago about how you know, the Christian school in Sheldon was talking about a rainbow day, and that was because they wanted to bring out the importance of the Noahic rainbow, the rainbow of Noah's time. But when you say rainbow today, everybody gets in a flutter, right? Because that means something entirely different in the homosexual community. Well, same with that word inclusion, right? We're an inclusive people, and it makes us sound so wonderful, but what it really means in the cultural way is that you do whatever you feel like. And nobody's going to judge you for whatever you do. That's a scary way of looking at people and at life. But inclusion is something that Jesus Christ clears up for us in his word, where he calls people of all of all peoples throughout the earth, and say, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And I don't care what ethnicity you are, I don't care what race you are, I don't care what gender you are, I don't care how young or old you are, I want you to come to me, and I will gather you. The world likes to bring about unity in sports, they want to bring unity politically, they want to bring unity in the United Nations, they want to have diversity seminars, in educational institutions, uh, they want people to—they want to teach people this tolerance and this inclusion at the expense of the truth of the gospel, rather than a tolerance and an inclusion in the truth of the gospel. Social engineers think that people are by nature good, and if they just say it enough times, there won't be any more war and there won't be any more hatred. It'll all leave the world and. And we can sing kumbaya around the campfire. None of that works. What we need to have in common is not what we look like on the outside. Get rid of that. What we need to have in common is to know that we are partners of grace with others in Jesus Christ on the inside. The oneness of the church doesn't rest on sinful human beings. It rests on what God does and what God says. There's one church, but not first because we see with depth the pure oneness that we will one day see in Christ. We see in a glass darkly right now. And people love to poke holes at the church that way because of the disunity that people see. But we can still speak about one church, not because... We say so, not because of sinful people who disrupt that, but because of the sovereign God of grace. 
and because he says so. As with anything that we profess, we profess because of what God says. God the Father, the Son, the Spirit, the Church. It's because of what God says. What God says is what matters. What God says is there's one elect people of God, chosen from eternity, gathered by Christ through the ages. One. And it's Jesus Christ, the head of the church, who has all authority over heaven and earth, who says there'll be one flock and there'll be one shepherd. It's the word of God that says apostolically that there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one baptism, one body, one spirit, one God and Father of all who's above all and in all. Certainly there are all kinds of denominations. Certainly there are all kinds who call themselves church. Certainly not organically do we find them all in union. Those are challenging things to see happen on this side of glory, knowing the, the sinfulness of mankind. But the confession of the oneness of God's people isn't based, first of all, on the ability of men to bring her together, but in the ability of Christ, the great peacemaker, to bring them together by his work and by his spirit and in his time and the time of his father. We can be thankful that professing and even striving for harmony in the church then isn't an empty exercise. It's not a fool's errand. It's a reality that's based on God's work, God's grace, God's time, God's Son, God's Spirit. And that's why we can profess it with confidence. And that's why we continue to seek after it in our dealings with one another even on the very grassroots, brass tacks of life, just within our own circle. And why we can look forward to making that profession of faith in full one day, when all of God's people will have been gathered under the direction and grace and sovereignty of God in Jesus Christ. There's also, of course, a holy church that we profess, and that too is dependent, first of all, on God and not mere people. What makes the church holy first is that the holy God chooses them by grace. To be a holy edifice. God didn't choose them because they were holy. He didn't choose them because he said, well, they stand out from these people. I'll choose them. No. God didn't choose them because they were holy, but to declare them holy unto holiness. He makes them holy through the justifying work of his son, but then he also chose them so that they might live distinctively, right, in this world as God's holy people. They're saved by his son, they're sanctified by his spirit, and here again is what makes his body unique. The church is not the local lion's club or the local fitness club. This is a unique body, precious body, because one belongs to it, not first of all because we chose God, but because God sovereignly chose us. That's the profession we make. That's, this is a special people, not because they made themselves special, not because we were special. Peter said it again, right? I'm a sinner, Lord. Go away. No, I'm going to have you come to me. Don't be afraid. God has made themselves. 
And because he's made them so, they take on this, a special holy place in the world. And that, again, I say this a lot of times, but that's why you get up in the morning. You get up in the morning for, the, in the morning for a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons why you get up in the morning, particularly, basically, foundationally, is because as part of the church of Jesus Christ, you take on a special holy place in the world. Now, that's not always appreciated. Like the confession says, the rage of the whole world can be against her. And it shouldn't surprise us then that as the Holy Church, the world thinks we're weird. When we look at the world, let's say, educationally different than the world does, we look at the world through the eyes of faith rather than the eyes of unbelief. Different in the world that doesn't recognize its creator. And we look at marriage and money and children and even evil differently in a sanctified way. As those called not to bow our knees to the bales of the world. Even so, as those called to be aliens and strangers in the world, we know that the God who saved us is the very God who's preserving us and supporting us against that rage. And so we don't shrink from it. We don't just say, well, we're just going to go along with this. We're going to conform to the pattern of the world. No, we're going to be transformed by the renewing of our minds as those who are part of the Holy Church of Christ. And it's not because we were so holy, but because God in Christ has made us so. The church is also universal. Confession says that the Holy Church is not confined or bound or limited to a certain place or certain persons, but is spread and dispersed over the whole world. That was quite a statement to make back in the 1500s. In that day, the concern of the Reformed was for those who would have considered that the church was to be found in Rome, where the Pope presided. Or that if one were to belong to the church, one needed to belong to the church of Rome. Of course, that was the perspective of the king of Spain, too, who disdained his reformed subject. Right? Now, you've got to remember again, that's why this, this confession was written, certainly in part, was to show to the king of Spain that his reformed subjects didn't have to belong to the Church of Christ or the Roman Catholic Church in order to be loyal. But the confession makes the statement rightly that one should not confine the church in this way. Quit confining the church in this way. No single ecclesiastical or organization has a corner on the holy church of Jesus Christ. And there are people who believe that. The church is just too broad for that. It's a universal church. You cannot truly call Jerusalem the Holy Land and think, well, that's the only place where the Holy Church is really holy. And you cannot look at Jewish people and say, because they're Jews, that's what makes them holy. And it won't be compacted and condensed and 
and concentrated in Rome. It will not be in any one place where you might want to make a pilgrimage because the church is too broad for that. And the power of Christ is, is too broad for that. Because while the church is gathered, it is done in an expansive way. Wherever the Holy Spirit of Christ is at work with His Word. And we can take great delight in that today. It's encouraging that God's people in Christ are found all over the country. And all over the world. Now not every church is faithful. And we get into that also in the confession as we go on. But the beautiful thing about the Church of Jesus Christ Universal is that it springs faithfully from the universal reign of Jesus Christ over his world and over his church. The universality of the church shows that not first because of how powerful the church is. There was a time where only 7,000 didn't bow the knee to bait, but but about how powerful Jesus Christ is. Everything for that matter that we testify biblically about the church, its oneness, its holiness, its universality, testify to how powerful the sovereign God of grace is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's why we profess our faith not in the church. Some people want to do that, right? They have an idolatry for their church. They actually believe in the church, but that's not our calling. We profess our faith not in the church, but in the God who builds his church. And that's why you and I are called to that profession of God. As we're called to profess the church and belong to it. The profession of the church speaks to its importance and its beauty as God builds it. It's not a fanciful profession. It's a true one. And it's not so first because we make it so. Because if it was because we made it so, why would you join it? No, it is a beautiful edifice. It's an important one. It's a true profession because God makes it so. God makes all the difference in how the church is to be viewed and how she is to be professed. May he also make all the difference in our own lives as we're called to belong to Christ's church through the peace that's won for us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We profess our faith in the God who builds his church, a church where the saint of the, uh, where the uh, prevalence of the devil cannot prevail against, the walls of evil cannot prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's take a moment to pray and respond to God. We thank you, Heavenly Father, to be reminded of the beauty of your church as you build it. The oneness in your church, the holiness of your church, the breadth of your church through time, through the ages, 
through your grace, through your Son, through your Spirit, a holy edifice to be sure as Christ makes peace with people, with the reconciliation that he brings about between him and us. Uh, Lord, we pray that we would take delight in that. The church is oftentimes has stones thrown at it, and we have to admit there are times in ourselves, Lord, that, that uh, because of our own sin or because of the sins of others, uh, we may wish to turn away from your church, but we don't when we're reminded of that it's beauty and its importance and its value, the ways in which it can nurture us and be a blessing to us and we to her is based on the fact that you have made it this unique edifice, this unique holy temple of the spirit uh, so that we may not only see glimpses of this oneness and this holiness and universality today, but one day we will see it in all its fullness when Christ returns on the clouds of glory. Thank you, Lord, for your word, your spirit, your grace, your gospel, and for your church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.